look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, where I tell you quite a bit about football and just a tad about life. And this week, we're going to have a totally different kind of podcast. I'm a big reader, and I decided that on this podcast, in the middle of this holiday season, you might be looking for something for that special football someone. So I'm going to have authors of three books that I like, and I think we're going to have a good, intelligent hour of conversation about their books and about the game of football that you'll really enjoy. We're going to have John Feinstein, who's the author of 40 books, and the latest from Doubleday is called Quarterback, Inside the Most Important Position in the National Football League. Then we're going to have Bob Glauber from Newsday, who just wrote a book called Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s. And that's Parcells, Walsh, and Gibbs. That's a book by Grand Central Publishing. Then we're going to have Collision of Wills author Jack Gilden. And that's a book about John Unitas, Don Shula, and the rise of the modern NFL. This book has some great, great history stuff from the 60s that I guarantee you, if you're a history buff or just love football, you'll really, really like. But before I get to those conversations, I just want to tell you, in keeping with the theme of this program, one of the reasons why I think writing about books, which I'm going to do some in my Football Morning in America column next Monday about books I recommend this holiday season— and also just sort of over the years, my culture of reading a lot and reading books and not just newspaper and magazine stories and internet stuff now. But I, I sort of got started in some ways uh, reading when I was just 10, 11, 12 years old, reading some books that really were enlightening about what sports were really like. I'll never forget reading Paper Lion at an early age. It was a book with George Plimpton, uh, a great writer at the time. Uh, George Plimpton was embedded with the Detroit Lions and, in fact, tried to make the Lions as a backup quarterback. And his adventures with uh, the Detroit Lions team uh, at that time and that was tremendously enlightening to me and made me think, hey, wouldn't it be fun one day if I could write about things like this, if I could take people where they really can't go? And then later, obviously, the Ball Four book that Jim Bouton, a pitcher for the Yankees at the time, uh, or for a long time pitcher with the Yankees, uh, had written about the real life uh, in the major leagues. And I, I, you know, there's so many interesting books. Instant Replay by Jerry Kramer, 
uh, comes to mind about what it was like to play for the Vince Lombardi Packers. And I just mention this because these books really had a profound impact on my life and are a pretty significant reason why I went down the career path that I did. I wanted to get inside, whether it be news or sports or anything, I wanted to really tell people what the real world in whatever business that I chose to do, what the real world in that business was like. And I've been lucky enough over the years to be able to be embedded on draft days with some teams, uh, to be embedded for a week with the Green Bay Packers in 1995, to be embedded with an officiating crew, Gene Steratore's crew in 2013, to spend a week in the life of a quarterback with Carson Palmer of the Arizona Cardinals in 2015. Those and other things, those are the things I really, really enjoy doing because I think it allows you, uh, the reader, the experiencer, to understand what this incredibly popular game of professional football is truly like. So anyway, I wanted to tell you why I wanted to do this today, and I hope that you enjoy the conversations we're about to have. And it gives you some insight to the game that you love, that I've covered for so long, that I really have a great affection for as well. So we're going to start this podcast with my conversation with John Feinstein. Back on the Peter King Podcast, so happy to be joined by someone uh, who's had such a great career in journalism and uh, as an author and has combined journalism with uh, with writing books, as, as so many of you know. It's John Feinstein. He's written a book called Quarterback, and inside the most important position in the National Football League, published by Doubleday. And I wanted to have John on to talk about, when you first hear about quarterback, most important position, Uh, inside the most important position in the National Football League, the first thing you think is, oh, come on. There have been 900 books about quarterbacks. We don't need to know anything more. Let's move on to something else. But I'm sure that when John started this, he knew that there was going to be a a very, very high ceiling and that he was going to have to find out some stuff. And, And the approach that that John took was very interesting. Usually in a case like this, a guy might go out and say, well, I'm going to go get Brett Favre and Dan Marino and uh, Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, but he didn't do that. He went out and got a couple of very good quarterbacks, a couple of okay quarterbacks, a journeyman in Ryan Fitzpatrick, Uh, and I I just thought it was a really smart way to do the book because it's not a cookie-cutter position, and it's not a cookie-cutter league for what people want in quarterbacks. So anyway, John, welcome to my podcast. Thanks a lot for for joining me. Thank you, Peter, and thank you for the kind words, and and you're 100% right that when I went into the book, I knew there'd been, as you said, 900 books written about quarterbacks in different ways, shapes, and forms, and I wanted to take, the approach I take to all my books is, um, I'm not necessarily looking to make headlines, I'm looking to explain headlines and get behind the scenes, and 
I was lucky that the five guys I ultimately selected, Joe Flacco, um, uh, Andrew Luck, Alex Smith, uh, Doug Williams, for a unique reason, and as you mentioned, Ryan Fitzpatrick, were willing and able to give me the kind of insight into being a quarterback that I was looking for. And able is important because there are a lot of guys who are very good at at playing quarterback. You've interviewed many of them who aren't necessarily great at explaining playing quarterback or what goes into it on and off the field. These five guys were all good at it. And I, I really, like I said, I really wanted to write a book about inside the position to steal from the subtitle of the book. And I think these five guys allowed me to do it. Let's, let's just start with Doug Williams, who a lot of modern football fans don't realize his significance, both as uh, obviously the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl and to absolutely unequivocally dominate a Super Bowl with one of the greatest performances by a quarterback or any player in Super Bowl history. Um, he's gone on to a career as a scout, and now he uh, works in player personnel in Washington. So I want to know why you picked Doug Williams as one of the guys to focus on in your book. Well, I needed an African-American voice, Peter, because I think playing quarterback in the NFL as an African-American is different than playing it as a white quarterback. I think scouts sometimes look at you differently and as Doug pointed out, if you're a superstar coming out of college, if you're Cam Newton, if you're Jameis Winston, it, it doesn't really affect the way you're scouted or judged. But if you're not at that level, it does have an effect. Look at where Russell Wilson went in the draft. Part of it was his height, but part of it was that, that he was an African-American. Look at Dak Prescott. Um, look at Lamar Jackson this year. I, a guy like Bill Polian, who's in the Hall of Fame, was saying he should become a wide receiver because he wasn't tall enough. He's six foot three, um, and and Doug is very keenly aware of that. That in 2018, uh, this is still uh, an issue. And as you said, Doug was ideal for me. A because I've known him since his rookie year in Tampa, thus dating myself, letting you know I'm old. Um, and also because. Uh, not only was he the first African-American quarterback to win a Super Bowl, he was the first one selected in the first round. Uh, Joe Gibbs played a major role in that as an assistant coach at Tampa and was the guy who brought him back to the NFL in Washington, um, a, a huge part of Doug's life. And also because I knew, as I said, having known him as long as I have, that he would be very honest and forthcoming with his, with his thoughts, and, and I think he was. You you also, uh, this wasn't just about what it was like to play quarterback and what it was like to be uh, the first really high-profile black quarterback uh, in the history of our country, but you also were able to talk to him about sort of the difficulties that African-American quarterbacks still face today. Uh, Deshaun Watson, Lamar Jackson, and I wondered... What was interesting to you about those comments from from uh, uh, Doug Williams? Well, it's interesting because I asked him early on if he kept – obviously he scouts colleges and he scouts the NFL constantly because he's the personnel director for Washington, as you mentioned. Um, but I asked him if he kept a particular eye on the African-American quarterbacks, and he said he absolutely did, that he was always aware of – 
who was coming up in the ranks in college and who was doing what and how people were being viewed uh, in the NFL. And at one point early on, I said to him, because I was always a big fan of Deshaun Watson when he was at Clemson. Uh, I thought he had all, I'm not a scout, but I thought he had all the tools. And what I saw was a guy who won, who made plays when they need, most needed to be made. And when he slipped, you know, not hugely, but went lower in the draft than I thought he should go, uh, I was surprised. So I asked Doug, I said, where do you think Deshaun Watson goes in the draft if he's the exact same player and he's white? And Doug said, before Trubisky. And I said, Trubisky went second. He said, yeah, exactly. And that's sort of the point, that even today, Doug honestly believes that black quarterbacks are looked at by some, not all, but by some, differently than white quarterbacks. And, you know, we saw, we, we, if Kyler Murray goes in, in, into the NFL draft, which for his sake I hope he doesn't, uh, I think we'll see it again. His height will certainly work against him, but that won't be the only thing working against him. It's interesting uh, in looking at this as a topic, obviously I'm I'm going from memory now, but I think uh, Mahomes and Watson were picked 10th and 12th overall. Correct. And so if you're picked 10th and 12th overall, there are, there are teams with quarterback needs who have bypassed uh, that position and, uh, and bypass those players. And I watch Patrick Mahomes now, as we tape this, uh, on Monday afternoon, uh, exiting week 14 of the NFL season, we have just seen really, in my opinion, the greatest game of, even though he's only had 14 starts, the greatest game of Patrick Mahomes, career. And I don't know how, when you watch that game, you could have scouted pro scouted for a pro football team and thought that oh maybe the system at Texas Tech uh would have prevented him from being a great quarterback because my gosh he he's i said in my when i wrote my column about the game i said he's almost like some combination of Brett Favre and Omar Vizquel <laughs> because he can he's he can make all those ridiculous throws. He's got a very strong arm, but just like Omar Vizquel at shortstop, who I always thought could throw the ball like Kent to Colby or could throw it like Bob Gibson, you know, either underarm, you know, submarining or 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 over or the side top. Arm if need yeah, be, yeah right? or sidearm. He can throw it any way. And so I really wonder about that too. And I wondered when you came away from that conversation with Doug Williams, did you find your opinion either changed or hardened about uh, the the sort of state of the African American quarterback in the NFL? It's a very good question, and my answer would be it made me feel good that I that that Doug thought I was correct because I obviously have great respect for his opinions on scouting in general. Um, you remember Andy Reid is the same guy who took Donovan McNabb with a second pick all those years ago and was booed for doing it. And uh, so he saw what, what you're seeing now in Mahomes when he was in college. Remember, they traded up to 10 in order to draft him. And remember, they took him when they had a pretty good quarterback in Alex Smith. Yes. Someone who, who Andy Reid liked a lot as a quarterback and, and probably even more so as a person. And Alex was one of my guys, and, and Andy Reid told me that 
what he did for Patrick Mahomes last year, mentoring him and coaching him up uh, and, and befriending him, uh, is is the kind of stuff that money money can't buy. You can't pay that back in money, and that says a lot about Alex Smith that he did that for the guy who he knew was going to replace him. But um, I've always believed that there are people who have biases uh, when it comes to black quarterbacks, and you know you don't even bring up Rush Limbaugh because he's he's just not even to be talked about. But remember when Donovan McNabb was in Washington, when the Shanahan's claimed they had to cut their their playbook in half for him, that he couldn't learn the, their entire playbook. And, and Shanahan took McNabb out of a game in Detroit late uh, when they were behind and needed a score because he wasn't sure if he was in good enough shape to run the two-minute offense. And when I said publicly that I thought there was racial coding in those comments, I didn't say they were racist, but racial coding in those comments, I was pilloried. Um, and, 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 you know, remember what happened? The team announced they were giving him a brand new contract worth a hundred billion dollars. And it turned out that there was a clause in the contract that said if they cut him right after the season ended, they didn't have to pay him anything more than, I think it was a two or $3 million signing bonus, which isn't bad hush money. Um, but they cut him right away as soon as the season ended. So they didn't have to pay him another dollar. Um, it is times people don't want to acknowledge that it exists, but, hearing Doug say it made me feel even more strongly. Uh, with John Feinstein, the author of Quarterback, Inside the Most Important Position in the National Football League, published by Doubleday. John, I want to ask you about how uh, you just sort of slip this into the book, sort of deep into the book. It was about Alex Smith. But you had a quote from Thomas Dimitrov, who's the general manager of the Atlanta Falcons. And I never heard him say this, even though I've had many long conversations with him. But he has a quote in your book in which he says, until you find your quarterback, the search for him consumes you. And when I read that, I thought to myself, okay, there isn't another position in sports. You know, you don't say, well, the you know, Brian Cashman, the general manager of the New York Yankees, until we find our center fielder mm-hmm. for the next 15 years, the search for him consumes you. They don't say that. The Boston Celtics don't say until we find a point guard, the search for him consumes you. You know, it's only said about one position in all of sports, and that is the quarterback. And as you went through your research on this book, I assume you got beat over the head with that sentiment, that sort of ethos among people in the NFL. But now you've written about everything in sports. <laughs> so I want to know, do you feel that quarterback is the most important position in sports? And how does it compare to some of the other mega important positions on playing fields and golf links in sports? I do feel that way, and, and, and I think when, when Thomas Dimitrov said that to me, we were talking about Matt Ryan um, as a potential uh, target for, for, for me. Um, I didn't know Matt Ryan at all. Um, I did talk to Thomas on several occasions, and, of course, he's someone who's had a franchise quarterback uh, in Ryan for the last 11 years, and that's when he made that comment to me. And it, it, it struck, struck home because think about it, Peter. Let's talk about other positions. Starting pitcher. Has, has the ball in his hand um, for every pitch as long as he's in the game, but he only pitches once every five days. Closer, 
might pitch two, three days in a row, but he's only in the game for one inning, and he's only in the game if his team has the lead. Hockey goalie, huge. I don't think you win a Stanley Cup without a goalie playing really well. Um, But that being said, your team has to score at the other end, and you're somewhat at the mercy of your defense. And just as a quarterback, I would say, needs a, a good offensive line. Because if you have a bad offensive line, you're going to get killed no matter who you are. But the quarterback not only has the ball in his hands on every offensive play, he has to make, as you know, Peter, this, this sounds like a great Peter King story piece <laughs> for me, that, that every decision a quarterback has to make on one play, think about it. He comes to the line, he has to check the protections. You know, when, when you see a guy pointing at, 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 like Peyton Manning started doing and others now copy, he's pointing at a guy who's not where he was expected to be and telling his O-line, somebody's got to get to him or I'm going to get killed. And then do I stick with the play or do I check off? If I check off, what do I check off to? Then when the ball is snapped, you, you, you drop back to pass you have to make a decision. Do I throw the ball quickly? Do I go to my primary receiver? Do I go through my progressions? Do I run with the ball because nobody's open? Do I take a sack? Tom Brady may be the best in the history of football at knowing when to take a sack. That's why he throws so few interceptions. Um, Alex Smith's very, very good at that, partly because until this horrible injury, he was as, as agile and mobile as he was. Um, but the number of decisions a quarterback makes on every play – with very large, very angry men bearing down on him, to me, makes the position unique. And the preparation that goes into every game for a quarterback is, as you know, because you, you've gone through weeks with quarterbacks, it's endless. And so, yes, I think, I think we underestimated the uh, subtitle of the book. I think it should have been inside the most important position in sports. And I'll take the hit for that. I was being conservative. <laughs> Uh, John, you, you said something that, uh, if I were making the five most interesting points that I read in this book, one would be about Alex Smith, where you talked to his coach, his first year in the NFL in 2005. And Mike Nolan was that man who's now on the staff of the New Orleans Saints. And Mike Nolan admitted to you it's easy to look back now, but I really wish I'd let him run the same kind of offense he ran at Utah. Back then, no one thought to run what was basically a read option offense. Alex's skills, the ability to use his legs and make decisions, were strengths that I didn't take advantage of when I could have and I should have. That's an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement that a head co- that a former head coach uh, would make about his time, and I think it 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 tells you. I think po- something positive about Mike Nolan. Mm-hmm. He realizes he made a big mistake, and you know, I I think it also says it. While it says something positive about Mike Nolan, it says something negative about him as a football coach. Because I think you, as a football coach, you have to recognize what you have in the players you have on your roster. Mm-hmm. And he didn't. He didn't see that at the time, and and that ended up really. I mean, this is a bizarre thing to say. I'm not saying it would have ruined Alex Smith's life, but it would have ruined his football career if he didn't have the sort of steely mental toughness 
to move on from what was a pretty negative experience uh, with a lot of people thinking he was a total bust early in his career in San Francisco. Yeah, for six years. Uh, you're right, Peter. And I, I agree with you 100% that that it shows who Mike Nolan is as a person, that he would admit that. I'm sure you spent time with him, and you know he's that kind of guy. Um, but remember, Mike was a first-year head coach when he drafted Alex. And his bigger mistake, probably, hindsight's easy, was not taking Aaron Rodgers with that pick. But he was a first-year head coach. He was a defensive coach all his life. He had one year as an offensive coach in his entire career. Um, Nobody was running the read option back then. Nobody really knew what the read option was at the NFL level. It was considered a, quote, college offense. Um, So I'm going to let Mike Nolan up on that a little bit, because partly because I like him. Um, But... He's right when he says he made a mistake in not using Alex's skills. Uh, remember also that Alex had five co- offensive coordinators his first six years in the league, and that's a nightmare in itself. Uh, he had a bad shoulder injury that was misdiagnosed at first, and Mike was trying to force him to play when he couldn't, could barely raise his arm, uh, which can happen in the NFL, as you know. Uh, and it was really Jim Harbaugh who saved his career. Uh, when he came to San Francisco and talked him into not going to free agency, which he could have that year, um, brought him back. They went 14-4 and four that year, just missed going to the Super Bowl, and they were 6-2 and two when he got hurt, and Colin Kaepernick came into the lineup and played so well that Harbaugh couldn't take him out. But uh, Alex has been through a lot. Uh, both those first six years and now with the move from Kansas City to Washington and, and obviously this horrible leg injury. And, it, and anybody who knows him at all will, is, I don't say praying very much, but I'd pray for Alex Smith in this, in this I totally agree. I'd say among all the people I've ever met in the NFL, he's one of the most honorable, personable, pleasant, and incredibly team-oriented guys Mm -hmm. I've met because he basically worked hard with Patrick Mahomes to allow Patrick Mahomes to steal his job, period. That's exactly what happened. I asked him about it this year, and one of the things he said to me was, hey, look, we're all just thrown together in this crazy business, and there's no need for us to hate each other, and nothing that I'm going to do in a negative way is going to change what the Chiefs are going to do. And so what what good does it do for me to be a jerk to this guy behind me? You might as well help him, just like I hope 15 years from now he helps the next guy. Right. That's and, pretty and, big. And, yeah, and, and, and that, as, as I said, that that's what Andy Reid was so blown away with, that basically when he called Alex or actually texted him to tell him they were going to try to trade up to get Mahomes, he knew he was letting him know, I'm drafting your replacement. Uh, And and as Alex said to me last year, you might sit a guy for one year in in these circumstances, but you don't take a guy trade up to take a guy at number 10 and sit him for two years. So he knew his career in Kansas City was going to end after this uh, after the 2017 season. But as you said, um, knowing that he said, look, why not help this guy? He's a good guy. I like him. I like Andy Reid, who traded for me. I'm going to do everything I can to help. He's just a class act. Finishing up with John Feinstein. John, um, what's your favorite book that you've ever written? 
Well, I should say quarterback since I'm trying to sell books <laughs> for Christmas um, or, or The Prodigy, my current uh, work of fiction that's out. But the honest answer, um, and it's an easy one, is The Civil War, the book I did on the Army-Navy rivalry. Uh, my wife refers to it as our fourth child uh, since I'm still so close to so many of those men, I, I still want to call them kids, even though it's been 22 years, uh, that I wrote about in the book. I, I, I think playing for Army, playing for Navy is unique. Uh, what they go on to do uh, when they graduate is completely different than athletes in any other sport that, or in football that I've dealt with. And I don't know if you've been to Army, Navy, Peter, but there's nothing like being in a stadium for the Army Navy game. It's it's. I it need I need to go. I, I you really do. do. You do. You're a football yeah. guy. You've got to yeah. go to the game. You you really do. And um, it, it it every year uh, I I I've, I've been to let's see everyone since 1990. So how many is that? 29 now I guess. Um, every year without fail when they play the alma maters, my wife always sends me a text. It's the only football game she watches, and, and she sends me a text when the alma maters are ending, and it just says, are you crying yet? And the answer is always yes, and it was that way on Saturday uh, after the game. Never fails to get to me because of who those kids are. And I know this will sound corny, um, and, and I'm a supporter of, of what Colin Kaepernick did, uh, but when they play the national anthem at the Army-Navy game, and you see 8,000 hands, 4,000 cadets, 4,000 uh, midshipmen, you see 8,000 hands go to salute position. And you understand that every one of them has volunteered, volunteered to die for our country if need be. If that doesn't give you a chill, then nothing will. It's very interesting. I want to tell you one very quick story. I'm surprised you said that, not surprised, but I didn't know what you would say. But but I I want to tell you one story about the only football game I've ever seen at uh, at Army, and it happened four years ago. Uh, it was Stanford at Army. Um, I was at that game. You were at the game. Yeah, okay. I was. I was on the so, sidelines. Yeah. So uh, I after I I, I I it's a long story, but but the one thing that I will never forget about that game, never, is that during the game, Ty Montgomery, who at the time was a wide receiver for. Stanford. Yep. Uh, and uh, he wore number seven, I think. And there was a uh, a cornerback for Army who I bet was 5'7 <laughs> and about 158 pounds and who was trying to bump Ty Montgomery and be physical with him. And basically, it was, I, I, they jousted all game. And afterwards, Ty Montgomery sought him out. There's so I mean, the field was there was a, a thousand people on the field, and right. they played their 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 school songs and and the alma mater, and yeah. the alma mater everything. And but but Ty Montgomery had to go find the cornerback for Army, and he gave him a hug. And it was not just hey, good game. He talked to him for about forty five seconds, and for some reason, I don't know what it was. I had to ask Ty Montgomery afterwards, what happened? What did you say? What did you He goes, Hey, I I just wanted to say something to this guy. How much I respected what he did on the field that day, because every play was the most important play of his life. And I also wanted to tell him, look, 
I know I might go to the NFL. I might play in the NFL for 10 years. And every day when I play in the NFL, I'll be thinking of that guy I played against Army who's willing to risk his life so that I can have my life. And I just right. wanted to tell him how grateful I was. And I said, dude, that is one of the great and most most uh, warm and aware things that I think I've ever heard an athlete say. Yeah, and you do run into that when kids compete against Army and Navy because they do understand how hard they play. That obviously, how can Peter, how can Navy beat Notre Dame four times in 12 years? There's no way that can happen. Notre Dame has every possible advantage you can have. Navy has every possible disadvantage you can have because every one of their players knows they're going to have to serve in, in the Navy or the Marines when they graduate, just as everybody from Army will serve in the Army. And, and, and so I think a lot of their opponents respect how hard they play, uh, how much football means to them, because it does mean a great deal to all of them. Um, and I, I think if you understand, like I said, what they're going to go on to do for all of us, really, um, that's what makes those schools and the kids who play in, in, in that game uh, so special to me. And it, it, honestly, it's been an, an honor for me to know them, so many of them as well as I have. And I, I'll also throw in one last quick thing. When I did a Civil War on the day of the game, I was in both locker rooms going back and forth before the game, during the game, after the game. And I think I can honestly say I'm the only person ever <laughs> who wasn't president of the United States <laughs> to have that privilege. That's amazing. That really is amazing. Can you see it in their eyes how important the game is? Oh, God, yes. I mean, that's one of the great things about being on the field when they play the alma maters because you, you, you see the tears, winners and losers. Uh, I mean, the seniors um, who know they played in their last Army-Navy game, in the case of the Navy seniors this year, their last game because they're not going to a bowl for only the second time in 16 seasons. Um, and you see the hugs are so genuine. It's not just, hey, like you said, it's not just nice game, man. It, it, it's more than that. And I'll never forget, I have so many moments from, from the playing of the alma maters, but last year when Army won and, and won the Commander-in-Chief's Trophy for the first time at that point since 1996, they retained it this year. But during the playing of the Navy alma mater, I was standing next to Scott Swanson, who's been the Army strength coach for 25 years. Uh, great, great guy. And one of the Army... Plebes, Camden Harrison, was standing right in front of us, and as the Navy alma mater started, he was still wearing his ski cap because it had been snowing all day, and Scott just reached out, touched him on the shoulder, pointed at the cap, didn't have to say a word, and Harrison whipped it off because he, you know, he knew he'd made a mistake and stood at attention for the Navy alma mater. That's the way the rivalry is. It's fantastic. It really is. John Feinstein, author of Quarterback, Inside the Most Important Position in the National Football League, a book by Doubleday. I really, really appreciate you taking the time talking to me. Peter, thanks for doing it. I appreciate it very much. It's always good to talk to you. And now my conversation with Bob Glauber of Newsday. Back on the Peter King Podcast, so happy to be joined by Bob Glauber, who's written a book called Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s by Grand Central Publishing. Um, 
I basically lived this era with Bob Glauber. So I fact-checked his book, and I have to say, it's mostly reliable. <laughs> so anyway, Bob, thanks <laughs> thanks for joining me. Very high praise, Peter. Mostly reliable. <laughs> mostly I'm, I'm in good reliable. shape. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, so, Bob, I, I think for the people who would sort of like to know what this book is about, I the when I have a couple of people have asked me about this book like on on Twitter and things like that and and I because they saw that I uh I had a blurb on on the back of the book I said it's it's about one of the most interesting times in all of NFL history that you don't know about you know because no one has really ever looked at the the 80s and and basically the early 90s as any sort but mostly the 80s as any sort of golden age but i i think it was really an interesting golden age of coaches because but you know you you write extensively about uh bill parcells bill walsh and joe gibbs so sort of tell me in your mind what it's about and why you did it you know, I want to look back, Peter, um, at at a time in the NFL that was important, not only in its own right, but that connected to today. And, you know, it's a generation ago, but you wouldn't think, and so you wouldn't think that it really has anything to do with today. But, you know, in a lot of ways, it has everything to do with today. Because when you take the coaches in today's NFL, even the interim coaches, all of them, every single one, traces back in some way, either directly or indirectly, to Bill Walsh and Bill Parcells. Joe Gibbs, his coaching tree did not flower and blossom like the other guys. But every coach in today's NFL is on is on the tree of Parcells and Walsh. And, and, and they were really important coaches for that era and for the future. And they really laid the foundation for what the NFL is all about today. I did find them fascinating in their own and and as I thought back on that era, which was a great era, you can think back individually. Well, well and all of them deserve their own story. I, I just like wow, you know, these guys took turns winning Super Bowls in the '80s and early '90s, and if one of them wasn't winning it, the other one was. They had a remarkable run of eight championships over an eleven-year period. Incredible, and and they really did change the NFL. And I think the NFL at that point had matured. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, the fifties were, you know, its own era and special it kind of you know, in- increased the popularity of the sport. The sixties was Lombardi, the seventies, you had, you know, Madden and Noel and Landry and, um, and Shula. And, and that was great. But the eighties, the it, it was kind of a maturation and almost a perfect storm of the thinking kind of matured and the players matured. And it really created a great decade of football and you didn't have free agency to tear these teams apart you knew what you were getting every single week and these three guys in particular just battled and and they did it in such different ways i found it fascinating um you know walsh fought his way to championships parcells bullied his way to championships and gibbs did a little bit of both and you know winning three super bowls with three different quarterbacks remarkable no one's ever come close to that and i don't know that anyone ever will you, you. One of the things I thought was really interesting about this is the point you made early on that all three of these guys started their careers beyond inauspiciously, 
as head coaches. Mm -hmm. In fact, every one of them feared that he might get fired very early in his career. Tell that story. Yeah. It was remarkable, Peter, when I dove in and um, kind of looked back. Uh, they, they all did have that. They all had these, these really kind of deep-seated insecurities. Didn't get his first chance to be an NFL coach until he was 47 years old, 46, 47. And he had been passed over by Paul Brown in 76, and he was devastated. But he, after a year and a half, thought he, it, was, it was beyond him. I mean, he broke down after a loss to Don Shula in Miami and literally cried on the plane. His coaches and general manager, John McVay, had to crowd around him to prevent the players from realizing that something was wrong, but something was terribly wrong. He had this moment of self-doubt that he didn't think he could do it. And somehow he kind of you know, persevered and hung in and, and ended up winning it the next year. Gibbs, Gibbs was 0-5 in his first five games for the Redskins and literally thought he was going to be the first coach in NFL history who was fired before ever winning one game. It sounds crazy, but it's true. He feared that Jack Kent Cook, when he came into his office, was calling him in to be fired. <laughs> and then he, he turned, it, turned it around in remarkable fashion. He ditched his entire Eric Coriel offense in an NFC East that had it, and he became the Hogs-centric, ground-oriented uh, coach who, who won three championships with three middling quarterbacks. And then Parcells, was, Peter, was going to be fired. After first season, the Giants had agreed unanimously to fire him. Uh, George Young realized that he might be in over his head. Mara, uh, the Mara relatives, John Wellington Mara and Tim Mara, who were feuding at the time and not speaking to one another, they said he's got to go. Well, the only reason they couldn't fire him was because they couldn't get Howard Schnellenberger, the coach of choice for George Young. And they said, all right, we're, we're going to give Parcells another chance. And Bill had a metamorphosis in that offseason and, you know, just Parcells, like, who I think I should be, I've got to be Bill Parcells. And thus was born this legendary um, coach who kind of willed his teams to, to winning two championships. So the, the beginnings were very inauspicious. And, you know, people have said to me, how could you call these guys unlikely? I mean, they're, they're in the Hall of Fame. Well, yeah, they are in the Hall of Fame. Talk to me in, or send in anybody in 1979 and tell them, hey, over the next 12 years, three guys, Bill Walsh, Bill Parcells, and Joe Gibbs, are going to collectively dominate the NFL. The first question probably would have been, who are you talking about? Who are those people? I mean, that's unknown they were at that time. Bob, um, the one thing that I thought also was interesting is how you sort of related the stories about how these guys really didn't like each other. There was not the sort of, uh, I, I'm not, and I'm trying to think of coaches that you could say, like maybe uh, Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, or, or um, you know, I'm trying to think of who Belichick would match with. Belichick really doesn't like Tomlin, but, but Belichick and Harbaugh, they've had some, they've gone at each other, but Belichick and Harbaugh have a lot of respect for each other. Um, but, but I think, one of the things that was very interesting is you you found out some stuff about, particularly, I think what's most interesting you found out, and I know this because I covered the Giants in the 80s just like you did, but, but Parcells had no relationship with Joe Gibbs. He wanted to beat Washington so bad that 
you know, to think of having a relationship with a coach of that team was just, it just was unacceptable. And mm-hmm. he thought essentially that that Bill Walsh was pulling some funny business uh, in some of the games that they played. Can you, uh, I, I don't want to give away your, you know, a great part of this, <laughs> but I thought that was a really interesting, and I didn't, I had heard about this, but you really flushed it out. T- tell this story, Bob. Well, okay, that story was about Parcells and Walsh uh, meeting on the field uh, before the 1986 NFC Championship game. Now, the year before, Parcells had beaten Walsh at Giant Stadium 17-3, to really did a number on that offense. And um, By the way, that interaction between Parcells and Walsh about the headsets occurred in the divisional round, uh, not the NFC Championship game. He recalled something from that game. He just kind of tucked away where the 49ers headsets went out the first series of the game. And he just found it interesting. Um, and, you know, the Giants under NFL rules, you have to, every team has to turn off the headsets if one team has them go off. And until they're working again, then they, then they both come back on. He filed it away. And then the next year they meet in the, cha- in the, uh, in the FC championship game and, you know how Parcells goes on the field uh, talking to the other coach. He's standing there, arms folded, chewing his gum, and just you know, just shooting, shooting the shooting the bull. And he says to Walsh at one point in the conversation, "Hey, I know what you did in that last year's game, okay? And if you do it again, I'm reporting you. I'm turning you into the league, okay?" And Walsh knew exactly what it was because he had. You know, turn the headsets off on purpose because he scripted that first series and and beyond, and he just wanted to put the Giants at a disadvantage. So Walsh turned to him and kind of looked at him, smiled, and winked. He said, eh, it's just a little gamesmanship. And Parcells is telling me this story. We're in the, his apartment in Saratoga last summer. He had me up there, and we, and we visited for several hours. And, and he, he just starts smiling as he's recalling this story and, and he describes it as so, so I'll tell you sets mysteriously went off on that first series in that, in that 85 game mysteriously. And he's just, he's reveling in the story, but out of that story here came a real development in their relationship and a closeness that they forged because the way Parcells described it was, you know, he realized that I knew what he did. And he realized also that I didn't tell anybody and he hasn't told many people this. And he, he kind of respected that, you know, he, he just respected it as a competitor and their relationship really changed after that. It was one of much more mutual respect because, you know, Parcells, as you, he was a little bit jealous of Walsh, you know, the genius, right? Parcells is kind of run this round and pound type type system and, and Walsh is doing this all this offensive stuff and getting credit for it. He's the greatest thinker in NFL history. And Parcells is, you know, like any Jersey guy who was fixing for a fight, he's, he's not liking it. And, I mean, it was Parcells who nicknamed that offense the West Coast offense. And he just kind of did it matter-of-factly. It wasn't, it wasn't trying to insult Walsh, but it kind of, kind of came as an insult to Walsh. Like it was this, uh, you know, finesse offense that, that, that Walsh was a little bit he just didn't like that that description of his offense because it was much more than that. And, and the West Coast offense was actually born in Cincinnati when Walsh was there as an offensive coordinator. So those guys really 
kind of developed a better relationship to the point where they became friendly as time went on. And, and, and Walsh and, and Parcells had several conversations, or a handful of conversations uh, after Walsh had retired. You're right about uh, Parcells. They didn't, they didn't really speak to one another. They Parcells and Gibbs. Uh, Parcells and Gibbs, correct, yeah. sorry. Uh, Parcells and Gibbs did not like one another. And I, I think they certainly respected one another. And that's, I got that from both of those guys in, terms, in, in talking about them and with them about the book. And they really had a great amount of respect. And, you know, you mentioned the Giants around Joe Gibbs during the 80s. You mentioned Lawrence Taylor and, like, they will turn around. Richard Justice, the former Washington Post beat writer, told me this great story. He says, you could, you could tell those guys that Lawrence Taylor was in the parking lot and they would go out and look and they were afraid that he was there. They would have entire practices devoted to trying to stop Lawrence Taylor. They were obsessed with him, and they were obsessed with the Giants because Parcells, uh, Parcells had Walsh's had uh, Gibbs's number for the most during those those matchups in the '80, especially in that uh, championship game in 1986 when the Giants uh, went to their first first uh, first Super Bowl. I know you told this story recently on Twitter. And I remember this story almost as vividly as any locker room story I remember in any year that I've covered the NFL. And that encompasses 35 seasons. But you told a story about Carl Banks getting mad at a radio reporter in Washington after a game. And I I don't know that you told the complete story with Bill Parcells coming out of the shower with a towel on to diffuse (laughs) the situation, but you have got to tell this story. So this is the, um, the 85 game between the Redskins and the Giants. It's the the game that Joe Theismann broke his leg. It's the first Monday night game I've ever covered. And I'll never forget it. It was the most intense game that imagined. So many developments, you know, starting with Joe Gibbs breaking his leg. And, you know, Jay Schrader comes on. There's trick plays. The Redskins beat the Giants. A very emotional game. LT is crying, having broken Joe, uh, Joe Theismann's leg. It's, it's just a terrible scene. So, and, and as you might expect, the emotions are really raw in the locker room. And at that time, uh, Brad Benson was the Giants' left tackle, and he's, he's getting dressed, and he was a strong guy, very very moody and surly, you know, great competitor, but he was, he was not happy and he's getting dressed. He's, you know, they, these guys are coming out of the shower naked and, you know, he puts a towel on and he's trying to, trying to get his clothes on. And there's a radio reporter, uh, standing kind of right next to him and looking at him. And Benson at one point just says, you know, what are you, what are you looking at? And the guy incredibly says, I'm looking at a bunch of losers. I mean, it was as if he had lit a stick of dynamite. How do you say that in a locker room? But it was, and, and, you know, Benson started going at him. Banks, Carl Banks started going at him. Parcells comes Do you remember, Bob, 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 do you remember Banks started screaming at the top of his lungs, ain't no bleeping losers in here. Bleep you. And Banks was going to kill this guy. Yes, and and you know you know who really broke up that fight? No, it was it was Wellington Mara. Wow, who was probably in his seventies at that time, and he came over and saw what was going on, and he got in the middle of it. No no punches were thrown, but man, it was close. And 
I will never forget that moment. And it was just the, the, uh, the you know, the wow, the, the conclusion I- of just an incredibly uh, emotional day. And I, and I realized that also, you know, the Giants were sleep deprived in that game because Parcells had blown it with their travel plans that had gotten botched and the team was up till like three in the morning. They didn't get into, into their hotel till then. So it was, it was a calamitous night and um, just emotional and capped by that. I mean, I remembered for a different way. I said, my God, that's a heck of a sight. Bill Parcells in a white towel that's way too small for him. <laughs> sort of looked like a collection of postage stamps on him. <laughs> Terry Cloth oh, postage Peter. stamps. Yeah, memories. Great memories. <laughs> but, um, yes. We, we we would see coaches in a different light back then. Now it's uh, it's, it's a little bit different. Yeah, uh, I'm with uh, Bob Glauber, the author of Guts and Genius: The Story of Three Unlikely Coaches Who Came to Dominate the NFL. Grand Central Publishing. So I want to end with two other issues. Okay, I I've always always been fascinated at how Joe Gibbs took a bunch of middle-class guys and kind of lower middle-class guys. I think the only comparable thing, basically, is Bill Belichick and how he takes a bunch of Kyle Van Noys and, uh, you know, goes 12-4 and every year. But the difference is Belichick had Tom Brady, you know, Mm -hmm. and and Joe Gibbs had Mark Rippon and Jay Schrader and Joe Theismann and Doug Williams and and I, not to criticize any of those guys but they're not they weren't in their day considered to be franchise quarterbacks so what do you think made Gibbs so good I think Gibbs's ability to analyze situations and think through situations and kind of put pieces together is what made him special and, you know, Jeff Bostick, the longtime center of the Redskins, told me this story about what happened in the Super Bowl when Doug Williams won it. You know, the Broncos were winning 10 nothing early on. and Gibbs, Something was wrong. And Gibbs just, just didn't really realize what, what the Broncos were, were truly doing. And he pulled aside Bostick um, late first quarter and said, what's happening? What, what's, what's wrong? And Bostic was telling him, he says, man, they're running like a version of the 46 that we, the 46 defense that we haven't seen before. And I, you know, the, I, I don't know. Well, that's what they're doing. And, and we're confused up in the middle and they're pull, pulling stuff. It's just not working. So Bostic describes it, gives stands there. And he had this, he had this position, he would assume, where he'd just fold his arms, put his, rest his chin on his hand and, put his finger on his cheek and just sit there, you know, stood there for 10 seconds. And he goes, okay, all right, here's what we're going to do. And then he kind of explained how they were going to change the offense. And they did change the offense. You know, they went back to that counter tray and went kind of back to the heart of what they, they used to do so well, right in midstream. Bostic said, I couldn't believe that he made and of course it was that record-setting second quarter where Doug Williams became the MVP and the and they blew up the Broncos and it was that was one example of how Joe Gibbs could think through a situation and use those pieces that he had you're right they, those quarterbacks were not close to the Hall of Fame I mean Thais was a really good quarterback shift he had mobility um, but but Gibbs had the ability to kind of just put the pieces in the right places and he knew spacing. He knew blocking. You know, having been 
uh, an offensive line coach at San Diego State. And he just he kind of knew how to put things together. And I think that's what really separated him. And, and, and that, is, you know, that ability to win with quarterbacks who are not Hall of Fame quarterbacks, as you look at every Hall of Fame coach, they all had those franchise caliber quarterbacks. You know, you could argue that Parcells the only one, you know, comparable to Gibbs because he won it with Sims, who's not in the Hall of Fame, and Settler, who had been a backup. So that, to me, is is what Gibbs, um, he just he kind of finds solutions to problems that, you know, confronted him and burned out because he spent so many hours trying to figure that out. He'd sleep in the office and have these meetings that just went on for hours. The the I'll end with this, Bob. The one thing that I take from your book and the one thing from knowing these three guys over the years is how, uh, you know, they say that uh, somebody told me this a long time ago and I've adopted it for my own. Every New England Patriots game plan is a snowflake. Every one of them is really, really different because Mm -hmm. they judge how they have to go against the opposing defense, the opposing offense, and only then do do they decide exactly what they're going to do that week. And these coaches are such different men. Bill Walsh, an erudite, uh, you know, very well-educated guy um, from out west who uh, a good time for him – uh, would be to play tennis in tennis whites and afterwards mm-hmm. have an expensive cab from the Napa Valley. Uh, Parcells' idea of a good time is, uh, you know, in those days is, you, you know, uh, coffee, cigarettes, talking football till midnight. Um, and Joe Gibbs was one of these guys who uh, never met a problem he couldn't solve. And and again, I'm not saying that Parcells and Gibbs or Parcells and Walsh were different than that. You have to be a problem solver as a coach, but it just goes to show you that there isn't just one way to coach a football team and to win mm-hmm. in this game. And that really fascinated me when I went back and 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 I was reading through your book. The one thing that just occurred to me is, you know, hey, Sean McVay is different. Uh, than uh, you know, than Matt Patricia. I'm not saying Patricia is going to be any good. We don't know, but you know, Pete Carroll uh, is different from Pat Shermer, and and so all the all these guys are so different, and it's and it's just a great example of sort of the humanness of being a pro football coach. That all coaches are not created equal, and I wonder if that occurred to you as you were going through your research and writing this book? Yeah, I think that that did come to me, and that's a great point. You said it very well, Peter. Um, you know, as far as the the idea that all these three guys were different and, you know, that it's a good – you really described it well about coaches being so different, and it's true. And I found it fascinating that these three guys won so many championships, yet in in their own way. And they kind of stood by the courage of their conviction. And, and that goes back to that insecurity that they had when they all thought they were going to be fired. They kind of had to dig down and, and really discover who they were and be true to who they were. And once that happened, it kind of clicked for them, and they went on to win these championships. And uh, they, were, they were so different, um, yet they reached their players um, so effectively. And, you know, Parcells bullying them and, um, just challenging them into 
fighting back and, and making them accountable. Uh, Walsh perfecting everything within inches of his technique, devotion to footwork for his quarterback, perfect route running by his receivers, and then Gibbs, you know, finding those those ways, those those blocking schemes that that made the Hogs what they were, getting the counter tray into his offense and really making it work to the point where they would win Super Bowls, figuring out what to do with John Riggins when people before him really had a problem and reaching Riggins and, and kind of making that work when two very, very unlikely personalities coming together. Yeah, they, they, they did it differently, yet they arrived in spot, and that was holding that Vince Lombardi trophy aloft on the final Sunday of the NFL season. And it was, it was remarkable to, to watch it personally. And I think when you look back at it, you realize that it truly was a special time in NFL history. Bob Glauber, author of Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, good luck with the book. Thank you. Happy holidays, and uh, all the best to you. You too, Peter, and delighted to have kind of made this journey with you along the way. Uh, it's, it's, been a, it's been a real treat. All the best to you, Bob. Thanks, Peter. And now my conversation with longtime author Jack Gilden. Back on the Peter King Podcast, joined in studio uh, by Jack Gilden, the author of a very interesting book that I've really enjoyed getting into, Collision of Wills, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the Rise of the Modern NFL by University of Nebraska Press. And Jack Gilden is good enough to come into our studio in New York. Jack, thanks a lot for coming in. I'm glad to be here. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. So, Jack, um, what I think is really interesting, I love, I'm a big, big fan of living history. And one of the things about your book is I feel like there are several moments in that book that I'm standing with Vince Lombardi berating Bill Curry, his center, or, or you know, I'm standing with with Don Shula and John Unitas, and 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 I just I want to start and ask you first of all about your research for this book. You go back into an era that. There's a lot of people who are who are dead from that era. First of all, uh, there's a, including some of your very important, your main characters. So I, I'd love to hear just a minute about how you researched this book and how you delved into the topics uh, that you got into. Well, I started by traveling all around the country and finding the men that knew the both of them. So I went to mostly on the East Coast, though. I, I went everywhere from uh, Massachusetts all the way down to uh, where, where? Where was everybody? Tell me, tell me okay. where people are. Well, the one in Massachusetts was um, was uh, Dan Sullivan, and uh, he was up by Walden Pond, if you know where that. And that Dan is. Sullivan, tell me who Dan Sullivan he, he is. He was a right guard of the Colts, right. and he was a great offensive lineman. I think he also played some uh, tackle as well. And uh, he was a fantastic player. He was from New England. Um, he was with the Colts. I think he was drafted by Weeb Eubank in the early 60s, but made his fame with Don Shula's Colts. 
Then uh, I went to Atlanta and uh, interviewed Bill Curry in his office at Georgia State, where he was then the head coach in his last big-time college coaching gig. And I, I went to uh, St. Simons, Georgia, on a different trip to see uh, Jimmy Orn. I got to spend the night at Jimmy's house and went out. Uh, uh, Jimmy Orr, one of the great, probably unappreciated receivers well, unappre- in that era. I mean, he's definitely a Hall of Famer, you know, by statistics. And he earned it, but he's not in there, but he should be. And he... Um, he was also a famous carouser, so you know to go out drinking with Jimmy and stay out late with him, it was like being out with Mickey Mantle or or, so, or Babe Ruth or something. Wow. It was really cool to go out with him. I went to where else did I go? Well, I went to Miami and went to Shula's house and sat on his sofa and had to ask him some uncomfortable questions. And I went. How'd you find Shula? Uh, I, I fa- meant. I meant. I know. I not how physically. I mean, how 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 is he these days? How how's he? How's well, he doing? it's been a few years since I was there, but yeah. he was, you know, if you grew up when we did, you know, he's not that guy anymore. Right. He's, I mean, he's advanced into his mid to upper 80s and he was using a, a walker and, um, but he was an extremely amiable guy, really nice. He lives in a palace in South Florida. I mean, a really gorgeous house with a, with the uh, I don't know what that body of water is behind him, with some kind of a bay where I you think can it's see the, the intercoastal waterway, if I'm not mistaken. But you, you uh, could see the skyline of Miami beyond yeah. it, and then in front of him was this magnificent golf course. His house was gorgeous and filled with the most unbelievable artwork you've you've ever seen. It was like <gasps> his house was like a museum in terms of the quality of the art that was in there and the artists yeah i i i find this era of nfl history so interesting because of the characters and and jack before we delve into the cults of that era i want to ask you a question about what really sort of slapped me in the face chris russo had me on his show and he was telling me that you you've got to get Jack to tell you some stories from his book. It was an incredible, he loved your book. And um, I, there was one story that I went back and read. I've actually read it three times. It's so interesting. And it has to do with the relationship between coaches and players in that bygone era 50 years ago. And it has to do with the coaches' total lack of knowledge naturally because i don't think anybody knew much about it about head trauma the effect of concussions and the fact that if you had a concussion you were just basically told shake it off and you have a great passage in your book the green bay packers in 1965 were going to welcome a new center to their team bill curry who was just coming out of uh of college football uh, Georgia Tech, right? Or uh, if I am I? Uh, yes, Georgia Tech. Yeah, Georgia Tech hey, for Bobby Dodd. Yeah, and uh, so he was just coming into the NFL. He was going to go play for Lombardi, but in playing in the college All Star game, which was something from a bygone era, the colleges used to pick an All Star team every year, and every August, the college All Stars would play against the reigning NFL champion. And so, obviously, uh, you know, after that game in which Bill Curry suffered a concussion, he was to report to the Green Bay Packers. Uh, and that was going to be his NFL team. Um, and I introduced that because I want to ask you to read a passage in your book. 
And one of the reasons I want you to read this passage is not so that people can just learn about it, but this is the depth of information and reporting and detail in this book that really makes it a good book. So if, if I could ask you to read that. Sure. Lombardi informed Curry that he would probably play in that night's intra-squad's scrimmage. Without regard to his head injury, Bill was taken to a classroom and tutored in a few rudimentary plays. Even without the injury, Curry was just a 22-year-old kid who was asked to play his second game against top-level pros in two days. Curry was still concussed and aching from his game the night before, travel-weary and utterly lacking professional experience when he was thrown out on the field in a driving rain to play later that night. That was his first real taste of the demanding Vince, but not the last. In his second year, Curry played in a preseason game against the Steelers. He was kicked in the head with a blow so violent he dropped to the grass as if gunshot. In fact, he had just suffered another severe concussion. He attempted to regain his senses and to continue playing, but when the quarterback signaled for the ball, Bill failed to snap it two times in a row. After the game, he wasn't even capable of dressing himself. His wife had to be called to the locker room to put his clothes on for him. Later that night, at a team dinner, Lombardi checked on Curry's health by asking him a series of questions. Curry, do you know where we are? No, sir, Curry answered. Do you remember how you got here? No, sir, I sure don't. Curry, who won the game? We did, coach. Good, Lombardi screamed and everyone erupted in laughter at the sight of an intelligent young man reduced to the state of an advanced geriatric patient by a serious brain injury. Two days later, Curry still had a, quote, splitting headache. He was sitting in the locker room holding his head when Lombardi walked in and ordered an assistant coach to take the young player out on the field in full pads. Ray Nitschke, one of the most feared men in football, was already outside waiting for him. The two were instructed to smash each other at full speed over and over. That's just unbelievable. <laughs> it's just, when you when Bill Curry told you this story, were you, I, I mean, when I read that, I just felt incredibly sorry for Bill Curry. Yeah, I did too. And you know who I really felt sorry for is Bill Curry's mother and father, because I have a son. And I have a daughter. And, you know, when you think about people look at these NFL players and they think they're fully blossomed men. But when they come into that league, they're just kids, you know, and, they're, and these parents are entrusting their kids, essentially, to, to these men. And they uh, abuse that trust for a long time. And Vince Lombardi, he's a very compelling character in my book. But he's not always a positive force, and in fact, he rarely is. He, he did some despicable things to these to these young guys. And Bill Curry, Bill Curry goes two ways about it. He he goes between rank honesty and he tells it like it is, and then at other times he seems to feel some guilt and remorse about you know being so blunt about people. But I think he carried a lot of anger about Vince Lombardi for a lot of years. How did you walk away from your research of this book? If somebody said to you, what do you think of Vince Lombardi? What would you say? Well, I guess, you know, I, Vince Lombardi for me represents kind of the, the um, decisions that every man has to make in his life. And you have to decide if you want to be great 
or if you want to be a decent man sometimes, those two things come into collision with each other. And I think that Vince Lombardi at a certain point made the decision that he had a quest for personal greatness and nothing was going to stand in his way of getting it. And I think that he was willing to do whatever it took. He was willing to look at those men as as something less than himself and that their needs and health and happiness were something less important to him than his own. And he, he was willing to uh, abuse them physically and psychologically to get – to get what he wanted out of them, and and he did. He knew how to do it. So I want to get into the book itself and sort of the you know the the inner story of this book, which I mean everybody obviously knows who Don Shule is and everybody knows who John Unitas are. But they had seven years as coach and quarterback together. And it was not only not altogether pleasant, but there was quite a, quite a bit of rancor, and there was quite a bit of two very strong-willed men. I thought the name of the book is great, Collision of Wills, because here's John Unitas, and so that we understand, in those days, a quarterback was going to call his own plays. And, you know, woe be to the fool who suggested hey, John, maybe that's not the best play to call in this particular case. And so a coach had to have a much different relationship with his quarterback than he does today. Tom Brady is told what play he's going to run. Now he can change it, but Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator of the, of the, of the Patriots, is going to decide what plays are going to be called. And if Brady changes too much of them, then uh, there's going to be an issue there. So I, I guess I would start by asking, what was it about John Unitas and Don Shula that made them a little bit of oil and water? Well, first of all, I, I want to go back to something you said, and then I'll come back to that question. But you're talking about Brady having to do what Josh McDaniels t tells him. One of the hidden heroes of my book, I think, is Weeb Eubank, the original uh, coach of the Colts. He built the Colts from scratch. They had nothing when he got there. They were financially and talent-wise, they were bankrupt in both areas. Then when he left, he went to the Jets and he took them. I mean, they were the worst organization in professional football and he fixed them and made them a, a world champion and almost a carbon copy of the Colts of the late 50s. Part of his genius was was teaching the players how to think for themselves. He got criticized for that. I think he's been downgraded in history because of that. But in reality, he taught the players how to be self-sufficient. John Unitas and Joe Namath both to this day are considered two of the canniest play callers in the history of football. Whatever else you think about Namath because of his statistics or whatever, he was a great play caller. And he totally took over that Super Bowl. And the real hero to me was the man who tutored both of them, and that was Weeb Eubank. Now let's talk about Shula. And That's here really goes. interesting. Thanks for pointing that out, really. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. And, and Shula, interestingly, was also tutored by Weeb Eubank. Now, when he talks about it, he talks about Paul Brown's influence on him. Paul Brown was his first head coach because he came in with the Cleveland Browns. But Weeb was the coach who scouted Don Shula. He wasn't on anybody's radar. And uh, Weeb had discovered him in a game where they went to scout the opposition. But Shula impressed himself upon Weeb. And Shula was exactly a Weeb player. He was maybe a little uh, iffy 
goofy talent-wise, but he had a big brain in his head. And and uh, and Eubank loved guys like Shula. And in fact, Unitas and Barry and so many other guys you could look at were just like Shula. Well, when Shula came in, came to the Colts, he was a pretty decent player. He'd had one good season with the Browns and with Baltimore. He had had two seasons in a row, I think, where he had five interceptions in two seasons. He was a he was a cornerback. He also was the quarterback of the Colts defense, calling all of the plays. Well, Weeb had really known about Johnny U because he had talked to Johnny U's college coach. Everybody's like, "Oh, he just showed up for a tryout one day, and he, you know, and they discovered him, and he was turned out to be great." Well, no, Weeb had lots of contacts in college football, and Johnny U's coach was one of his contacts. And he said, "Hey, this guy Unitas is coming for a tryout. Don't go to sleep on him. He's really good. He's, you know, the Steelers didn't give him a chance." So Weeb knew he was coming, and then when he uh, started to practice on that very first day, Charlie Winner, Weeb son. 1957, right? No, no, like 55. 55, okay. And Charlie Winter was there on day one, and and he said, we knew right away. He said his arm, he could make every throw on the field. He was completely accurate. He could recognize the open man, his footwork. He's like, everything that you would look for, we could see it in the first few minutes of working him out. So we knew what we had. Also, Raymond Barry, somehow we knew he was a good player. He was uh, at SMU, I think. He, He was the son of a coach. He was in college. He was mostly playing defensive end. He was too too small to play defensive end in the pros. You could look at him and see that. But Weeb was so adamant that he wanted him. He was still with the Browns. They wouldn't allow him to sit in on the Colts draft that year, but he surreptitiously told the Colts to take Raymond Berry. It's like a 20th round draft pick. He knew he, he had an offensive end there somehow. So Unitas and Barry are practicing every day, and they're practicing against Don Shula, the cornerback with a pretty good reputation and you know getting pretty, pretty um, stable in the league. And all of a sudden, these two nobodies and Unitas especially, they looked at him like a hillbilly, and like you know they're laughing at him when he came in. He's lighting Shula up every day, lighting him up, lighting him up. And Raymond Barry said. He just, you know, he didn't have the speed to be a modern-day NFL player, and we were exposing that. You know, you could see it. He was smart. He knew how to position himself, but he just simply didn't have what it take. He could never cover a guy like Lenny Moore, for instance. So they are lighting him up, and then finally, before the 1957 season in, uh, in um, training camp, Weeb releases Shula. Shula is apoplectic you know he's got rage in his eyes he had to put on sunglasses because he had to walk past all of his teammates to leave the building and he didn't want them to see his rage and he got in his car and in baltimore we have something called the beltway that encircles the city it's a ribbon of highway that you know that that circles the city and so instead of going home he was so angry he got in his car and he just went over and over again around that gigantic circle around the city of Baltimore. So he couldn't go home. He was too pissed. All the players back in Baltimore said, he's coming back to punch Weeb in the face. But, <laughs> but Shula said, no, he, did, he didn't, never did it. But that was what was they believed because they knew what his temper was like. Um, <laughs> Jack, I'm, I'm curious, what made John Unitas great? That's such an interesting question. It was one of, one of my main questions to his teammates. And to a certain extent, it's even now, it's something of a mystery. But if I had to sum it up, I think it was the fact that, uh, that he worked so hard and they respected him. He was always the last person to leave practice, even when he was old. And uh, I think it was his intelligence and they respected that. But, and most of all, it was his toughness. So 
he, you know, even Shula, I mean, at, you know, Shula at the end of the book, he talks about how tough Johnny Yu was. He said, I coached three Hall of Famers. He said, Greasy was the best field general I ever had. And he said, uh, he said, Marino had the best arm I ever coached. But he said, Johnny Yu, he was just, you could bash him, bloody him, put him on the ground. He wouldn't say one word. He would just stand back up and he would throw that touchdown pass with the blood coming off him to win the game. And he said, that's, he was that kind of a warrior. And I think that that respect, what was so interesting to find out was that his opponents respected him as much or more as his teammates said. Every player that I spoke to, either his teammate or his opponent, they all loved him. They all idolized him. Uh, finishing up with Jack Gildan, author of Collision of Wills. It's a story about football in the 60s, mostly about the Baltimore Colts and the relationship between Don Shula and John Unitas. But there's so much other interesting stuff in that book. Um, Jack, what would you want people to know about both Unitas and Shula that maybe we, even people who are totally into football, that we don't know? Well, I think there's always more to every person and every story than what you think you know. And when you go in and you look with your own two eyes and listen with your own two ears and you go back to the people that knew them personally, you go back and you find every scrap that was written about them and you look at them with your own two eyes and on film and you describe them your own way, there are always new things to find about the, these people. To me, just the fact that they hated each other was was new. I was talking to Baltimore beat writers of the era, and, and these were very well-respected, great writers, and they were saying to me things like, you're telling me things I didn't know. And they lived it. They were wow. there every single day. So even the fact that they disliked each other, it was well-known to their teammates, but not very well-known outside of, outside of the team. Jack, I think the best thing I could say about your book is that for people who really like football and have liked it for a long time, or for people who like football who are young and they want to know what it was really like back then, I, I, I really had my eyes open about a lot of things, not only about their relationship, but I have a much more nuanced view of Vince Lombardi right now than I did. I have always had this view of Vince Lombardi that he's on the Mount Rushmore coaches, he stands for everything that is good, but it's just not that easy. It's just not that simple about Lombardi. as, And it's not that easy or simple about almost any figure in history. You know, I've read a lot about Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he's he's not the perfect man. Not you even know? close, no. and, and so I I just really like that about your book. You take something that is very, very well varnished, you strip off the varnish, and you get deep into the wood. And for that, I think you ought to be congratulated. I think it's a really, really fun, interesting, and, and important book. Thanks very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's why I wrote it. Thanks to my guests, John Feinstein, Bob Glauber, and Jack Gilden. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in my podcast series, such as my conversations with Roger Goodell, Tom Brady, and Adam Schefter. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com slash Peter King, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. 
You can also hear the Peter King Podcast on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and I'll see you next week.